Everybody go ahead and flip to Exodus chapter 25. This morning we're going to be looking at the tabernacle, also known as the visual aid of God's redeeming grace. Now I'm going to give you a heads up. If you are here in this room, you're going to be able to follow along real easy. we got a nice big screen at home. I think you're not going to have much trouble at all because Mark's back there hitting buttons so that you can see what we see. But if you happen to be listening to this in an auditory way, a week from when this moment is happening, this is probably the only time I've ever said this, I would probably not do this on Bluetooth in your car. I would probably watch this sermon because there is so much visual that's going to be going on. So uh, a couple of years ago, I was walking through the woods. I do that a lot. I live in the middle of the woods, and I was going hunting. That is also not uncommon. I very much enjoy hunting, but this was unique. I was going hunting with a high school girl that used to be one of my students, and I was not doing the hunting. There was no gun involved. She was a falconer. She had trained this red-tailed hawk that she had caught in the wild. It hung out on her arm with a hood on it, and she said, hey, Will, can I come to your woods and go squirrel hunting with my hawk? And I was like, absolutely you can. My last name is Hawk. You need to do this every weekend. Yes, please come and hang out with me. And so... As we're walking through the woods, I don't know anything about this kind of hunting. I'm like, okay, so am I supposed to be quiet? Am I looking for something? I don't want to miss what's about to happen because it's about to get National Geographic up in this mix, and I don't want to blink. And here's what she said. There are a couple of things that we're looking for, and this could not be a better illustration of the text we're about to go into. Uh, Exodus chapters 25 through 30 are a forest of details. You can't walk through without bumping your head into gold or tripping on some fine twined linen and all sorts of stuff like this. So here is the advice that I'm going to give you that she gave me. And I think you may see this part of scripture differently than you ever have. And you will see more Jesus in it than you ever have if we will do this. She said this, Will, here's what we're looking for. Number one, we're looking for movement. Squirrels don't always advertise themselves when you're in an actual forest like they do in our neighborhoods when they're playing chicken with our car. It's not like that when you're hunting. So what you're looking for is movement, and you're probably not going to see the squirrel. You're probably going to hear an acorn drop, or you're going to watch, you're going to see branches moving, okay? So number one, we're looking for movement. Number two, you're probably never going to see the entire squirrel. They're going to hide down in their nest. You're looking for uh, just a little piece of them. It, It could be a head poking out around a trunk. It could be a tail that's flittering off on the side of a tree. So one, we're looking for movement. Two, we're looking for them to be partially revealed. I'm going to call that partial revelation. And then finally, the last thing that we're looking for is a straight path because I can't just send the hawk into this brambly, briared vine area. He could fly in so fast that he could get injured. So we need an open view. We need an open straight shot to get there. Now, here is my promise to you. If you will look for the movement in these passages, if you will look for the the little hints of Jesus, the partial revelation, and the straight shot of the gospel, I truly believe this. Something in our Old Testament reading plan when we read through the Bible that we scratch our heads with, grab an extra cup of coffee, and push through will become beautiful to you. It'll not just become beautiful. It may be the best visual representation of Jesus in the entire Bible. 
And the Bible is full of visualizations. God is an artist. He painted everything that was outside, and we see it all across the Bible. So that is our goal. Okay, so somebody give me, what's the first thing we're looking for? We're gonna, I'm going to go teacher, not preacher style today, all right? First thing, movement. Second thing, partial revelation. I, I can see your lips moving, but nobody's feeling the confidence to put the volume behind it. But you're right, and you're right. And the last thing we're looking for? A straight shot, a straight path. All right, let me take a sip of water. We'll pray, and then we'll dig in. I had so many voice cracks in worship. I felt bad for you, Dakari, because I was behind you. I was like, is he worthy? And so I, gotta, I need my bottle of water today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, I pray for my sister, uh, who is in labor right now. I, I pray for Grace, who is serving in the medical profession. I, I pray for churches that are preaching the gospel. I pray for a country of people who are blowing things up last night to celebrate the freedoms that have been bought by blood. And I thank you for Chris as a representation of that, praying for us this morning. We are an abundantly fortunate people. Those of us in this room, those of us at home, those of us who are listening as Americans, we have been afforded so many gifts and so many blessings that we did not pay for. That is a beautiful explanation of the gospel. Thank you for all of the gifts that you have given us that far surpass anything we will find in this world simply because you loved us enough to pay for them for us. And so as we open up your word, as we dig into this hyper-detailed passage, God, would you show us Jesus? Would you show us a straight path to hope in the world? And we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, so I asked you to Bible up. Hopefully at home you've done the exact same thing. All right, everybody look at Exodus 25. Now, if you're using one of the little pew Bibles that we have, this is an ESV, it's going to have subheadings, okay? So here is where we're going to start. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 and 9. This is basically the primary text of this entire morning. This is our anchor. And here's what we read. And let them, speaking of God's people, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. What an interesting passage to be the anchor passage for a Sunday morning. What do we see? God is saying, I am going to dwell with you. That is awesome. We see that from Genesis to Revelation, from the garden into the new creation, God wants to dwell with his people, but there's something that's going to create a lot of tension in this passage. He says, I want to dwell near, but here's the problem. You're going to build it, and I need you to build it exactly as I say. All right, now, I don't know about you, I'm looking at Thomas, I'm looking at Jacob. God has required of me perfection, and I have yet to attain it. I have never been able to pull off the exactly in Scripture. So when God says, hey, Will, I want you to be exactly the kind of husband that my word calls you to be, I immediately go, grace, grace, please give me grace. Will, I expect you to be exactly the kind of father to your kids that I am to you. And I'm immediately like, grace, grace, grace. When God's people heard God say, I want you to build my sanctuary, they immediately must have been like, grace, 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 right? Except they didn't have that word like we do. So what do they do? Here is what we'll find. All right, so what's the first thing we're looking for, everybody? 
movement. All right, everybody watch. There are going to be six pieces of furniture that I want you to notice. All right, so everybody's Bibled up. What is the first thing that we see? You don't have to read the verses. You can just look at the headings. What do we see? Verse 10, right above it. The Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so this is a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, The mercy seat, if you've ever heard that, is the lid with the cherubim up on top. This is the ark. It was the place where God dwelled. That's the first thing. What's the next? I'm going to move pretty quick, by the way. Oh, don't give him hints, Bruner. All right, Bruner gave you the second one. All right, so does everybody see? All right, flip in your Bibles. Halfway down Exodus 25, what do we see? The table for bread. Depending on your version, it might say the show bread or the bread of presence. So this is the next thing that God says. He's giving them a blueprint, right? He's telling them, this is exactly how I want you to build it. First, it's going to be the ark. Then you're going to be the table. All right, somebody tell me the third thing. The golden lampstand. Let's take a look. Survey says you got it. All right, so there's the golden lampstand. By the way, just in case you're interested in history, it was made out of one piece of gold. Some guy, skilled by God, had to take one piece of gold and make all of these flowers and incredible things. This was the lamp. All right, what's the fourth thing that we see? Now you got to jump to chapter 26. The tabernacle. Tabernacle is a long, fancy word for tent. And so here is the tent with multiple layers of coverings. Some of them were curtains like draperies, like carpet and fabric. Some of it was goat hair. But all of these different layers that made this very, I mean, it's pretty large, especially in its day, this tent that was going to be the place called the tabernacle. All right, keep on cruising down. And what's the next thing that you see? The bronze altar, all right? And then after this, we've only got one more. Here's the bronze altar. What happened here? Sacrifice, 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 sacrifice all the time. It may look really pretty right now, but it was stained with blood pretty quickly, and it stayed stained with blood all all throughout the day. And then what is the last thing that we see? It comes right after that, right after the altar, the... The court. The court is basically when you put a pool in and the insurance company's like, hey, you need to put a fence around this thing so that somebody doesn't drown. This was not water that could kill you. It was the holiness of God, and you better not enter into it lightly. So you put the fence around, and that is the court of the tabernacle. Now, here's the thing. Uh, what is the, all right, so everybody Bible up one more time. We see the court of the tabernacle. There's oil for the lamp, and then what happens in chapter 28? What do we see? The priest, okay, don't miss this because to me it is one of the most amazing things about this section of scripture. How many items did God just list for them to build? How many do you see? One, two, well, don't use that, that's a cheat sheet. All right, how many did he actually list up to this point? How many words do we have? We have six words, okay? That's what God told them to build. But who said 12? Somebody noticed it. Bustamante, you notice it? But how many things do we have here? We have significantly more than six things. Why is God being such an inefficient architect? Why is God not starting from the outside in? Or why is he not including everything from the beginning? All of a sudden, he's giving us these things. Then we get to the priest, and then he's talking about a table. And then he's doing this later on. Why is God doing that? Don't miss this. Here is why. This is not an efficient build. It's an educational build. God is not trying to do this as quickly as possible. He's trying to teach them something. Not just that he wants to dwell with them, but that the process of them building with exact specification, the place where he is going to dwell, is teaching them a lesson. What are we looking for? Movement. Watch this. 
So here's the entire tabernacle uh, with the outer court. That's it, okay, and blown up. Does anybody remember the first thing? I don't have a cheat word for you. Anybody remember what it was? Altar, right? I'm sorry, the Ark of the Covenant. Boom, it starts right there. That is a big deal. It's the first thing because that is where God dwells. Watch the movement. What's the next thing that we see? We see the bread. Where's it? Boom, right there. What's the next thing we see? We see the lamp. Boom. Then what do we see? The entrance to the tabernacle. Boom. Then what do we see? The altar. Boom. Then what do we see? The outer court. Do you see the movement? God is starting with himself as the most important piece of the entire puzzle. And step by step, he is moving outward. He is moving from the holiest place where everything is idealistic and perfect into the next step closer to us. And then a next step closer to us. He's moving into a courtyard where any of his people could come. And then he finally moves to the very door of the courtyard where the world is opened up. What is God trying to teach us? He doesn't want them, his people who are building this, to miss the fact that he has chosen to come to them and he is choosing to go to the world. This is missions. This is God telling us before the Apostle Paul that he is wanting to reach the Gentiles, that he's wanting to reach closely more than just the high priest and him once a year. The movement that we see is God saying, I'm coming close and closer and closer and closer. I'm coming to you because you can't come to me. All right, does anybody remember what happened as soon as we got to the outer courts? Everything switches. We get to chapter 28, and what do we see there? Anybody remember? The priests. Why? Because God first says, I'm coming to you. And then we hit a dilemma. Okay, God, so you want to be near me, but there's a problem. I can't be near you. What do I do? And that's what we looked at last week, and God says the priesthood. All right, now let me explain. Let me explain. Here's the dilemma. If you look in verse, I'm going to throw this up so you don't have to look. If you look in verse, uh, in chapter 26, verse 1, here's what you'll see. This is sort of the paragraph. You may not be able to read it at home or here, but this is what the paragraph looks like. And there's one word that I want you to notice. And so it's been highlighted right here. What word do you see a million times? Curtain. All right, now when we think of a curtain, we think of this lovely thing that goes next to a window that frames the window. I'm, I'm uh, making fun of my wife right now who's at home. All right, it frames the window, and it's more delightful. Some of us are thinking about that thing that the cat tore up, and we still haven't fixed it, and now we have this little bit of anxiety because we remembered, oh, there's something else that we need to do. That is not what a curtain was in the Old Testament. Remember, God is teaching them how to build a sanctuary that is mobile. That he's giving them a big tent so that, by the way, mid-tree, we get this, Church has to move sometimes. Sometimes it's supposed to be in a school and it ends up at a farm. Sometimes it goes from a farm to an institute. Sometimes it goes from an institute where everybody can gather to an institute where some of us can gather and some of us are at home. The church moves. God moves. He is constantly on mission. Are you? That's not in my notes, but I think it's something that we should be asking ourselves. But there's this huge dilemma. God is saying, I want to be close. Do you see this? I want to dwell with you. You're even going to be a part of that. But this word curtain might as well mean locked door. It might as well mean wall. God is saying, I want to be close, but how are you going to come through? I have to wall this place off because you are so unholy, so sinful, so broken that if you come near me, it's not going to go well for you. This is the dilemma. Now, some of us can relate to this. Some of us have walked up to a store recently and we've gone to the door and the hours have looked good. But it's locked. 
It's locked because they're closed down because of COVID. Some of us have, have walked up to a door and the lights are on inside and we're like, I'm about to get a cheeseburger, I'm about to five guys this thing up and you can't come in. Or you're welcome to come in, just hop in this very long line. That is what this is representing. It, it, it's showing that there are tons of openings. Consider this. God gave them exact specifications. You want to come into the Holy of Holies? Good news, there's a door right here. You want to come into the holy place, into the tabernacle? There's a door. You want to come into the courts where my people are? There's a door. But everywhere in the Old Testament, there was a door. It was locked. It was constantly closed. That's the dilemma. We had a, <clears throat> we had a door in the youth room at Cross Point. I'm looking around to try to remember how many of y'all will remember this door. In the youth room, Liam, you'll remember this door. Okay, so in the youth room, there was a door kicked way off to the side in the gymnasium where we used to play basketball and stuff like that. Did you ever go through that door? The one on the far left? Say no. <laughs> Say no. Did you ever go through that door, Liam? No, you never went through that door. All right, the point is, like barely anyone ever used it, unless we need to talk later about what, you, what was getting, going on out there. But... No one ever used the door, and it was annoying because we had this really cool wall, and, and, it, and it looked awesome, and the, the question was, why do we have to put the door there? Anybody want to make a guess why the door is there? Fire safety for emergency. If the place was going to burn down, then they needed a door there. People would walk, and they would look, and they would be like, that's the dumbest place to put a door. People don't come into the church there. They don't leave the church there. Why put the door there? They put it there. So that if something were to happen in the future, we would be prepared. Why does God put a door into the Holy of Holies? Why does he put one in the front of the tabernacle? Why is there a little gate right at the front of the courts? Not because if something were to happen in the future, but because God knew something was going to happen in the future. He wanted his people to be prepared. That's why those doors are there. That's why the curtain is there. I, I remember... Um, when I was a kid, we were designing the house that I grew up in. And my mom said, Will, you get to design your room however you want. She didn't really mean however I want. I came up with some ideas. I got vetoed. But I was a real big Auburn fan at the time. I was in fourth grade. My second grade teacher, Miss Newton, was a huge Auburn fan. She was my favorite teacher. So I adopted it. I picked out Auburn wallpaper, Auburn uh, bedspreads, what do you call it, the comforter, pillows, all this kind of stuff. And I was hyper excited about it because I got to design it. But then... I found out, oh, it has to hit budget. Oh, it has to look like this. Oh, my mom doesn't want it just so. The people of God had to be insanely excited when God said, I'm going to dwell right here and the door's wide open. And then they keep building. And he says, but I need you to close it. And none of you get to go in except the high priest. And he only gets to go in one time a year. And when he goes in, tie a rope around his waist because if he says, does, or thinks something wrong, he's going to die on the spot and you're going to have to pull him out. I don't know that people were raising their hand for the job is what I'm trying to say. All this excitement, so close and yet so far away. All right, now, uh, Thomas or Dakari, one of y'all said this. Then we hit Exodus 28. How do we get in? And the answer is the priesthood. Now, I intentionally preached this last week so that we could sort of have a little conversation. All right, so for those of you who didn't have your coffee, shake it off a little bit because I need your help. I want you to tell me one thing that you remember about the priesthood from last week. What? What? The pomegranate, okay, yes, they have a very decorative robe, very good. What else do we remember? Come on, team. Mm-hmm. The chest plate, and what was on the chest plate? Stones and gems, and how many of them were there? 
12, and what was written on them? The tribes of, okay, all right, we're doing pretty good. Okay, and, and what was the point that Jesus bears us to God? He's the one who brings us to God. That's what the priesthood was. All right, here's what you have to understand. The priest was about to walk into the cleanest, the most pristine, the most holy, the most glorious place in the universe. That's what he was about to do. And we know that because that's what God declares it to be because his presence is there. So what does he do? He puts on this ornate robe. He puts on a headpiece. He washes his hands. He makes a sacrifice. He puts on gold that is pure and he walks in. Why does he do all those things? It's like a reverse hazmat suit. All of us know what a hazmat suit is right now because we're living in the age of all of us having masks and gloves. Right? Used to, I'd have to make an illustration like Outbreak, a movie that some of you have seen and some of you haven't. Right? Not anymore. Every one of us have seen on Facebook medical professionals completely decked out in a hazmat suit. Here's the thing you have to understand about the priesthood. They were not putting on that outfit. They were not putting on that ephod, that robe, that headpiece. They were not putting that on to keep something sick away from them. It was the opposite. They were putting pure gold on them to hide their brokenness when they stepped before God. They were putting on the purest and the cleanest of clothes to cover up their brokenness. They're trying to keep their disease held in so that when they stand in the presence of God, he sees something that is beautiful and pure and holy. J.A. Motyer puts it this way. The garments of the priesthood were to express not what Aaron was in himself. Not what was going on inside of him, but what he represented and what he was meant to be. That's what it's all about. When you see the gold, when you see the purity, when you see the cleanliness and the precision and the holiness, it's the Bible saying that's what your insides are supposed to look like. But there is a problem. None of us look that way. So we see the movement of God coming to us, and now we see the movement of God giving a priesthood and us beginning to go toward him. What's the second thing we're looking for? Movement, number two, what? Partial revelation. We're looking for the squirrel peeking out. So here's the question. Do you see Jesus yet? Because if this is one of the greatest illustrations in the entire Bible, we ought to begin to see Jesus. I'm going to do this in lightning speed, so if you're taking notes, it may be a little tough. First piece that we see is the ark, right? Everybody remember that? First piece we see. This is uh, verse 22 of Exodus 25. There I will meet with you, speaking of the ark, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This is where God dwells. It is where God speaks. It is where he is. Do you see any Jesus in that? What about if you look at John 1.14? This will appear behind me. And the word, the law... The word of God, remember, that's what is coming out of this place, became flesh and dwelt among us. As, as a Bible reading pastor guy, I can get really tweaked out on this verse. Because that word dwelt literally means to pitch a tent. It literally means to build a camp around. It literally means to tabernacle. Jesus could not have been any more clear as he pokes his head around redemptive history. And he says, I became flesh and I have tabernacled with you. And you have seen his glory 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the ark, we see a picture of Christ. What about in the table? Y'all remember those pieces of bread stacked up on that golden table? What was going on there? This is Exodus 25, 30. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. The big thing to notice there is the word regularly. Why are there 12 pieces? Anybody want to venture a guess? Because 13's unlucky and the baker needed one? No, why are there 12? Same reason there are 12 stones. How many tribes of God's people were there at this time? There were 12. And every single Sabbath, every single week, they had to be brought to God. Why? Because God has come that his people would be brought to him. Why else? Because what does bread make an Israelite remember? It makes them remember when God rained it down from the heavens. And so they come in and they realize that here we are, the 12 of us, being brought to God. We're doing this on the regular, creating this rhythm, and God is giving us our daily provision. And what does Jesus say? Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you see Jesus here? What about the lamp? This one couldn't be easier. I could sit down with a six-year-old and they could find Jesus in this. What is Jesus? Jesus is the light of the world. You remember how I told you there were all these curtains and blankets and stuff? That was a a like legit dark place. When the high priest went in and that curtain closed behind him, it was dark if it wasn't for that one lamp being lit. But what does an Israel an Israelite would not have said Jesus is the light of the world? They hadn't seen him fully yet. What would they have thought about when they saw a fire? They would have thought about a burning bush that caused Moses to lead his people out of slavery. What else would they have thought about when they saw a fire? Yes, when Pharaoh and his army is coming and God is leading them by a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. And they get pinned into the the Red Sea and an army's coming and what happens? The fire of God swings behind them and says, I'm going to protect you. The daily bread tells them, I'm here for you every day. And the fire reminds them, I am here for every day that ever will come. Let's just keep going. Jesus did say he was the light of the world. So we see him there. What about in the tabernacle? Remember all of those curtains? I'll give you this one because it takes a little more digging. Check out Hebrews 9, verses 2 through 4. It'll appear behind me. For a tent was prepared. The first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it's called the holy place. This sounds like an Old Testament verse. It sounds like somebody's in Leviticus just reliving what we've already read. This is Hebrews. This is after Jesus has come and died on the cross. Why is he talking about the tabernacle? He goes on. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold. And it was a golden urn holding manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Why is he talking about this? Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, that one who could actually come in to the presence of God. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made by human hands. What's the greater perfect tent that wasn't made by human hands? Christ. Christ is the one who dwells. He is the one who tabernacles. He is the tent. Do you see partial revelation of Christ? We've got two more. I'll do them quickly. The altar. This sat outside. And it was covered in blood all the time. Because before anybody could go there, 
a sacrifice had to be made. Hebrews 9.12. Jesus entered once for all. Not every single day, not once a year, but one time only. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats or calves, but by his own blood. What is the altar showing us? It's showing us that blood has to be spilled over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And don't misunderstand, this didn't happen for 10 years or 100 years or 1,000 years. Thousands and thousands of years this happened. Uh, I had this later in my notes, but I feel like I need to say it now. At some point, you need to decide if you believe this. Do you believe that the same clouds that you see were going over this place many thousands of years ago as people just like you and me trying to figure out life in a broken world were saying, God, can you help? Can you help me? Do you believe that just like you and I see the sun rising, that a priest watched the sun come up and he went to do his daily duties of setting out the bread as we open up the word of God? Do, do, you, do you believe that somebody was legitimately washing their hands with water to try to remove the disease of their heart as we are washing our hands every single day, a million times a day, because we recognize that we live in a world of disease? Do you believe this? Because if you do, it's going to change the way you live after you see Jesus here. Obviously, the altar points to sacrifice. And then finally, the court. Remember that insurance fence that goes around the pool? Why? 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race. This is God speaking to anyone who has trusted in Christ for their salvation. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. Every one of you has access to God. It's not just a few select. It's not me because I, I, I get to be the guy who comes up and does this. Every one of us who trusts in Christ has access to God. But is it in there? No. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. And it could period there, but it commas. Why? So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What does the fence tell us? It tells us that there are people on the outside that need to be brought in. And if you have responded to the gospel, you have not checked the box for the most important thing to finish in your life. You have begun the journey of drawing people into the presence of God through Christ. The last thing that we're looking for is a straight shot. And I, I cannot think of a better way to see it. I want to show you one verse. And then I want to show you, to me, what is the most beautiful piece of this. And I'm going to pray for us. The gospel is a straight shot from a sinful man, a sinful woman, to a holy God. It is the shortest path. It is from A to B. It is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And here's what we read in Hebrews 9. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, this is where I stopped earlier, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered. And every one of us should hold our breath at that line. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. He goes in one time, and he secures for all time redemption for all people who would trust in him. That's who Jesus is, and that's what he does. He enters in. Do you understand what's being said? All of these openings, all of these doors that exist, but always seem to be locked, and Jesus walks right through. 
Now, I want you to imagine it in reverse. He doesn't walk right through and wash his hand in the basin of water. He doesn't have to wash his hands like you and I do because he is the living water according to John chapter 7. He doesn't need to make a sacrifice at the altar the next step because he is the sacrifice according to Hebrews 9. He doesn't have to put up the bread of the presence because he is the word of God, the bread of God that we live by, Matthew 4. He doesn't even have to light the lamp as he walks into the darkest of places because John 8 tells us he is the light of the world and he doesn't need to pull back the curtain because he is the curtain that was torn once for all. And Jesus dies on the cross and we read this. And Jesus cried out, this is Matthew 27, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And Jesus dies. And these are the next words of the Bible. Jesus, the Son of God, the only one who is ever perfect, the only one who could have walked straight through, he dies. And this is the next thing God says. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Of all the things that God could highlight, of all the things that he could say, hey, don't miss this, you need to check it out. He points back millennia after millennia and he says you remember that door that was closed the one that you were like why did we build this in the first place because I knew a day was coming and I wanted you to be prepared and when Jesus breathed his last and when blood poured out of his side and poured out of his hands when it ran down his face the curtain ripped from top to bottom and Jesus walked right in and he looks at you and he looks at me And he says, why stand outside? Why stand far off from God? I have bulldozed away into the holiest place. Just follow me and my example. What do we do with this? I think there are a couple of things for us to do as we worship God today. At home as you're worshiping today. Walk in. Don't be satisfied with distance from you and God. He is not satisfied with it. Not in the least is he satisfied with it. He went to great lengths for thousands of years with incredible specification just to show you that you were welcome to come to him through Christ. So if you have not responded to the gospel, to the good news, I I don't mean for this to sound harsh and I'm not usually like a harsh pastor. That's on you now. You've heard the gospel. All you need to do is trust that Christ did what you could not do and ask him to forgive you of your sins. He can wash you like the water. He can pay for it with his own blood. That's on you to do. But for those of us who are Christians, Jesus did not die on the cross so that you would stay in the courtyard. He didn't die on the cross so that you would just barely sneak into the temple. No, he wants you closer than you have ever been. This is probably going to be the most the, the thing that I say that you're going to question the most. Do you know what God is putting on display for thousands of years through the tabernacle? God wants his people to not be satisfied. If he wanted them to be satisfied, he'd open the door. And why not do it in one generation? Why do generation after generation after generation have to wait? God wants us to be unsatisfied with this. He wants us to hunger for more. Have you lost your hunger for him? Have you lost your hunger to be near him? Have you marked it off as a one-time thing like the high priest who just popped in? Or do you daily 
regularly make sacrifice? Do you give him your life? Do you give him your heart? Do you give him of your resources and of your time? Do you say, everything that I have is yours. You've paid for it all. And I want more of you, Jesus. That is the voice of someone who has responded to the gospel. That's the voice of somebody who knows the high priest and sees the beauty of the tabernacle of God coming to us. So, Father, as we close this morning at home, maybe with kids running around, as we're driving through our cars listening to this, as we're in this room preparing to stand in worship, would your spirit usher us in? Would you show us that forgiveness of sins is available? If somebody needs to come and receive prayer, I pray that they would. Would you show us that for every one of us who has responded to the gospel that regularly we are to come? There is nothing normal about Jesus. There's nothing common about Jesus. And you have given us a straight shot to you through him. May we not become so used to church and used to our Bibles and used to the freedoms that you have given us in this incredible country that we use those freedoms for our own selfishness and not to pursue the thing that truly satisfies. Make us a nation of people. Make us a group of people who value you over everything else and seek you with all that we have as we behold you, believe in you, and become who you have called us to be. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.